Wherefore, comfort one another with those words. Do you remember what you were singing? His face forever to behold. Amen. And, uh, Gordon comforted me on the way up. He said, maybe today. We're going to be working on a whole lot bigger of a chorus of amens when we talk about the blessed hope in the future. <laughs> maybe today. All right. I know you believe that. I know you do. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And so for you men who may be like me, who have a tendency to be grumpy, this sermon's for you. <laughs> now we're not going to ask your wives and we're not going to ask your children if you're ever grumpy. Because you're probably not like me. You probably never get grumpy. And we're not going to assume anything but the best of you today. And, uh, but why go to Ecclesiastes 3 and why talk about or directly address men on Father's Day about being not grumpy but being joyful? What is the, what is the disposition that could or should um, be a primary identifiable attitude that every man should have? We're preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I was contemplating some other texts that I had recently read in my devotional time with the Lord and bringing a Father's Day message, but as I continued to study the next section of this book that we're studying, which is really chapters 3 through 5, that's the next block that we're going to take the next several times we're together and investigate, um, I thought, you know, the way this section concludes really should be a defining conclusion for any man, let alone any Christian. If you'll go with me, I know you're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you'll hold your finger there and go over to chapter 5, and let's look at verse 18 together. We are going to begin the discussion of this second main section of the book of Ecclesiastes by beginning at the end. And I'm going to, as we crescendo through the rest of the sermon this morning, I'll be able to explain to you why we're beginning at the end. Solomon says here in, in verse 18, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and to underline the word enjoy. Enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and to underline the word rejoice. To rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the, underline the word gladness. If you have a New American Standard Bible, you might have another translation that 
translates synonyms of joy or rejoicing or gladness. God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Now go back to that last phrase and underline the whole thing if you believe in writing in your Bibles. God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. So what Solomon is saying here is that God's grace, which is help from heaven that we don't deserve that you're all familiar with, if you know Jesus, right? God's grace compels a man's heart to be governed by a particular disposition. And the disposition here is gladness and joy. The rejoicing of his heart. So that's really a propositional statement for this morning. If you're walking with God, you will be known for your joy. Amen. You will be known for your joy. So I suppose the opposite of that is true. If you're not known for walking with God, or if you're not walking with God, you will be known for your grumpiness. Okay? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God would be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Are you with me? Okay? So this is good for everyone here. If you're governed by the Spirit of God, God's governing your heart, and He will occupy your heart, and you will be known for gladness. Eleven years ago, I was invited to meet with 40 other pastors who were all under 40 near Atlanta, Georgia. And it was supposed to be a think tank to discover why 500,000, a half a million young people, had left... what I would call probably conservative evangelistic churches in the past 15 years before then. There was, a, there was a mass exodus from our stripe, if you will. And leaders from all over the country was, were concerned as to why these young people were fleeing the scene of their good Bible teaching local churches. The conclusion of the group was difficult to come to because we're all accustomed to debating and not discussing. We were men of position, but the conclusion, doctrinal position that is, the conclusion was that the young people had been fleeing the scene of our local churches not because of our doctrinal position, but because of a lack of a biblical disposition. Not long after this meeting, a book was actually produced documenting in detail the nature of the exodus of these young people. conclusion was this these half a million young people didn't find the leaders of their churches to be very happy people 
And therefore, the churches had become like their leaders. And the church's existence was no longer governed by joy and happiness. God was no longer keeping leaders and people occupied with gladness in their heart. Just give me the cold hard facts, please, had become a way of life in conservative churches. Viewpoints were clear as ice and just as cold. Teaching and applications of teaching were mostly doctrinal and very little to do with the relational side of life. And of course, if we don't have good practice, we don't have good doctrine. We can't really say we have good relationships or good lifestyles. If we don't have good doctrine, we can't say that we have good doctrine unless we have good relationships and quality lifestyles. Pastors there had to do a quick gut check. The churches had become like their leaders, the men of the churches. The churches and the men of the churches had become like the pastors. The families had become followers of many of these good men. These good men who were uncompromising in their doctrinal position, but many who had become ungracious and unnecessarily stern in their disposition. It's not difficult to find the disposition of joy in the scriptures, is it? As a matter of fact, there's a doctrine of joy and, a gla of, and of gladness in the Bible. I think it begins with God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in Hebrews chapter 12, the author says, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. James chapter 1, most of you are familiar with. Consider it joy when you fall into various trials and temptations and let them have their perfect work of developing patience in you. Philippians reminds us again and again that the disposition of working in Christ's church in gospel partnership together is a disposition of joy. Chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord all the time. And again I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. Why? Because the Lord of joy is near. Even the God who wants to occupy your heart with joy and gladness is looking for, upon his return, finding the same disposition. In chapter 5 to the Galatian church, that had become buried with contention over the debate regarding whether someone gets saved by being a good person, doing good works, or they're transformed by simply turning from their sin and placing their faith in Jesus alone, Paul says... Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. For the flesh wars against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And the works of the Spirit are these. And every time I read this list, your heart probably does the same thing mine does. It just settles down and becomes glad. <laughs> Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
And if we live by the Spirit, the text goes on to say, let us also walk by the same. Let us be governed by His disposition. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, or envying one another. So whether we face light everyday tasks, general ministry, or the toughest trial we could imagine, apparently we're supposed to endure all these things with joy. I know at times we need to wrestle ourselves to this reality. I know me, I, the potter DNA is given to grumpiness. Trust me. <laughs> you could ask my children um, about me. They either got my, well, I got both of our DNA, but some of my kids are not given to grumpiness like their dads. So they probably got their mom's, more of their mom's DNA than mine. But I know it's a wrestling match for some of us, all of us all the time, but for some of us most of the time. We need to wrestle ourselves as a spiritual discipline back to this disposition and this reality of living in joy. I believe the Bible would teach that this is not only an independent wrestling match, but it's also an interdependent wrestling match. I think the Bible clearly calls upon all of us to work together to help each other wrestle ourselves unto that disposition of joy. I think you find that in the 23 one another's that are mentioned in the New Testament. Right? The Bible knows nothing of a Lone Ranger existence in the Christian reality. We do this together, and we also obviously do it individually. To all of us, but particularly to the men this morning, we need to be governed by joy. It should not be hard for us, fellas, whether you're a spiritual father or a biological father, for people who stand and eulogize your life, our lives, at our memorial services, for it to be easily said that this man, my dad, my grandfather, my discipler, was a happy guy. He was a joyful man. God occupied his heart for gladness. For gladness. Ephesians 5.19 says, Don't be drunk with wine, but be governed by the Spirit of God. Be controlled by the Spirit of God. And the fruit of the Spirit cultivates in our lives this love and joy. Our next section of Ecclesiastes begins in chapter 3 and ends, as I said, in chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, which we've already read. But I've got to let you know, what happens between chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, and excuse me, chapter 5 and verse 17 is difficult to comprehend. And what's wonderful about the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and how he governed man's hands to write Scripture. is to see the process of a life and growing towards Christ's likeness and being governed by the Spirit of God looks like 5, 18 to 20. In the next few weeks, when we go back to look at the other verses from the other chapters, you're going to see why we started here. 
Because these other verses from these other chapters are going to talk about the injustices of political leaders. They're going to talk about abuse that man inflicts upon themselves in the grossest ways. We're going to talk about the misuse of money. And boy, when you hear those three topics, your heart's glad, right? <laughs> boy, I can't wait. Obviously, we're going to talk about how God governs all these things unto his goodwill, according to his own character. But I want to start here, because here this morning is where we're going to learn to maintain the reality of God occupying our heart unto gladness, regardless of what we're hearing of what, or what we are enduring. Is God's grace capable enough to lead us through a culture that's angry and politically divided? Can he lead us through that culture with joy? Amen. Apparently he does and can If you unfortunately have endured, maybe as a child, a teen, an adult, any type of the grossest forms of physical or verbal or sexual abuse, and you lived and through the PTSD and the dark realities of all that was inflicted upon you, can the grace of Jesus Christ cause you to rise above? And not only rise above, rise above with joy. Can God, is God capable enough to occupy your heart with gladness? Apparently he is. Are you disgruntled with the rich? Are you mad because you don't have money? Are you feeling guilty over misusing money? whatever the injustice is in relationship to dollars and cents. Can we endure all these things with gladness? And apparently, Solomon's conclusion was, absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. So let's look at these verses that we conclude this morning. Okay? And head to our baptisms. Verse 18. Look at a few of these statements and conclude some promising things. He says here in verse 18, here is what I have seen to be good. The word good here just simply means that which is moral, that which has character, that which is morally good or without any moral problems. Moral dilemmas surround us in our culture. And immorality of every kind <laughs> saturates our culture. But Solomon's mindset was what? Here is what I have seen to be good. So how do we wrestle ourselves under this disposition of gladness and happiness? We have to look at, I think a good cross-reference here would be Philippians 4, 8a. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, of a good report, think on these things. 
meditate, ponder on what's true that is morally good in your life. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God hath done. Regardless of the conditions or the ramifications of what's gone on in your life that's outlined in chapters 3 through 5, God has still ordained every soul in human existence to experience and enjoy and maybe even own some really good things. And we're going to have to wrestle our minds there. In Jesus Christ. Without him, it's hard. It's impossible. But in Jesus Christ, we can. There are plenty of good things here that God has rained down upon every human being. Would you agree? Doesn't the Bible say that? He makes the rain and the sun to shine and to fall upon every man. He gives them food to eat, clothing to wear, shelter regardless of the quality to live under. It's the goodness of God that brings men to repentance. And since Jesus Christ died for all men, apparently, looking at Scripture, all men have received good things to lead them to repentance. But as saved people, as people that own a relationship with God in Christ, he says, here is what I have seen that is good and fitting, good and beautiful, moral and beautiful. And he's going he's to stop there for a little bit. And so should we. We had another local high school girl take her life. Two. One junior high and one high schooler within, I think, a month and a half of each other. And when you see that, you just tear up. Our whole culture is gradually beginning to think that there's nothing good to think about to do I don't know these children's lives I don't know their, their backgrounds I don't know what's gone on in their homes but your heart breaks and I would hope as Christians that God is occupying our heart with gladness I hope that we are wrestling ourselves to the reality of thinking about that which is good morally good and beautiful and thinking on these things. Maybe our love in Christ to our community would reach some children and some people with that goodness and gladness in Jesus before they end their lives. I don't know. But this is where the author begins. He's made a list. He's counting his blessings, and he's about to enunciate some of them. Tell us in particular what some of those blessings were that you're familiar with, because it sounds a lot like the way our first section ended in chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, that we discussed weeks ago. He says here in verse number 18, here's some good and beautiful things that I've been given. I get to eat and to drink and enjoy oneself in all one's labor, whether it be the labor of school or vocation, my job, in which he toils under the sun 
during the very few years of his life which God has what? Gifted him with. So whatever the fruit of your labor, regardless of the quantity of the fruit of your labor, Solomon's saying here, I choose to enjoy that because it is moral and it is beautiful. And I'm going to make a choice. We probably have close to 100 people in our church away on vacation this morning. Right? They're choosing to enjoy the fruit of their labor. They're choosing right, a good and a moral thing. The, the Richards, our choir director, they, they sent me a text message just before I got up to preach, and it's a picture of all of them in a beach house near the beach, and they're all live-streaming the service this morning. So hello, Richard. And probably many others who are doing the same. But they're choosing to go out right, and not be drunk with the darkness that's all around us, but to choose to contemplate and act upon that which is morally good and beautiful. This is what happy people do. You move on. You go enjoy the fruit of your labor. And this is what God grace compels our hearts to do. Right. Psalm 50 and verse 2 says, From Zion, which is perfect in beauty, God shines forth. The Lord is beautiful. His shining presence is in our hearts and lives in the person of Jesus Christ. He's given us in him eternal benefit and thousands of practical benefits. And those good things we should be enjoying. One author said that God himself is the absence of anything lacking. He is the epitome of joy and beauty. He goes on to say that truly allowing the gladness of God to occupy our hearts has everything to do with how much we know about God. And the more our lives are consumed with understanding him, and trying to figure, instead of trying to figure out how to fix all the darkness in our lives, let's be occupied with Him and understand His beauty. Then we will more readily account the good things that He's given to us. We're to eat and to drink and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor. My dad was from a generation, the greatest generation, apparently, according to one author. And it was a good one. But boy, they knew how to work, didn't they? They were defined by their sacrifice and their work ethic. Many to the point of being a workaholic. Not all, but quite a few to the point where it was difficult for them to wrestle themselves to joy because they allowed work to govern their lives instead of coming to a balance of working hard but then enjoying 
with gladness the fruit of their labor. So I may use this word occupied a lot this morning or saturated, but really this is what the text is about and how to go about achieving being occupied with living joyfully and thankfully each day over the reward God gives him, gives you from the fruit of your labor. Can I just ask you men, as you disciple or as you shepherd souls in your homes, how often do you sit down with those you're spiritually leading and just ask the question, what are you thankful for? We know 1 Thessalonians 5.18, this is the will of God that you be found thankful. How about praying for our lost friends first and then asking each other to recount the blessings of the fruits of their labor? What are you enjoying and glad for and thankful for that God intends you to enjoy and to be glad and thankful for? It's therapeutic for us, my friends. We must do this. We have to do this. Solomon had brought himself back, wrestled himself back after turning from his sin to be consumed by a disposition. And in his life, joy doesn't live in fear of the inevitable. The world's going to go on being the world. The Bible says the world is going to increase and wax worse and worse. But only God's grace can supernaturally cause us to crescendo towards gladness as we participate in a world that's growing worse and worse in darkness. That's only God's grace. Is each day truly for you a gift from God? Do you put your feet on the floor when you wake in the morning and look at each day with great anticipation? You say, I'm not a morning person. <laughs> well, neither am I. Remember I said we have to wrestle ourselves to these things sometimes. Say, so give me my coffee and my creamer and my sweetener and a nice shower, and then I'll think about being glad. <laughs> Whatever you do, wrestle your way to gladness in God, in Christ. Wrestle your way there. It's a fruit of your salvation, my friend. You're not enjoying your reward that God's given you if you're not. Furthermore, as for every man, verse 19, to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and to rejoice in his labor. This is a gift from God. I don't think any one of us would receive a gift from anyone that loved us with a scowl on our face. Two of my sons have to leave right after the service to go back to their schools, so we celebrated Father's Day last night. And all my kids gave me a gift. I was like, wow, this is really cool. It's really cool when they start making money and they actually can <laughs> get a gift without asking mom for the card. Hey, can I go shopping for dad? <laughs> so bless their hearts. No, it, to, and then decide to use their own money to get me one. So... 
one of my sons calls me on Thursday and says, Dad, trust me, I got the greatest gift for you out of all four kids. Trust me, you're, you're going to love it, right? And um, the other two kids, three kids didn't know that until just now, so don't get upset with him. But he said, Dad, it's nostalgic. It's, a, it, it's, it's, just, it's just a throwback. You're going to love it. All right. So with great anticipation, I awaited what I thought was coming today, but it came last night because we're leaving today. And uh, he brought out for me in anticipation of the Browns winning the Super Bowl this year, a Bernie Kosar jersey, <laughs> an, an, an authentic jersey. I was like, dude, that's like really nice. He goes, yeah, I know. He, he, just, <laughs> right? he said, I told you you'd love it, right? And uh, he said, my brother wanted me to get you a Baker Mayfield. He goes, no, but Kosar is your era. I was like, yeah, he's a proven winner yet. Baker's not. So I said, so Kosar it is. And then my other two sons came along and said, we went together and threw in a pot to get you a, uh, tickets to a game this year and let me choose which game I wanted to go to. So I was like, hey, this is really cool. Then, then my most beautiful child, Emma. <laughs> the others are handsome. She's beautiful. She came over later at night and got me a, a really, really I can't, well, I don't have time. I, I gotta go, we gotta baptize these folks. But it, it would be foolish of me to, 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 to receive those gifts with a stone face. No one would do, who does that? Who does that? Much gladness, right? Much thanksgiving. It occupied my heart, still is. <laughs> How much more God and, and his good gifts. God keeps us occupied. Can you, can you look at the last two words of verse 20 with me? God keeps us occupied with the gladness of his heart. Study God. What and who is the gladness of our creator's heart? What makes him glad? God is a person. Would you agree? He is a personality. God the Son, God the Spirit are the same. What makes the Godhead, what occupies the Godhead's heart with gladness and joy? The same ought to occupy our hearts. So are you joyful? Is the generation coming up behind you following a happy man? A happy saint. I'm sure at Grace Church of Menor, as you go deeper in the word individually and then together, I'm confident that the development of this disposition of joy is, is uh, constantly being cultivated in your hearts. I hope you find it in me and in my family. I hope you find it in our leadership here. Right? And then I hope individually, home by home, it's certainly recognizable in your leadership as a parent, maybe a single parent. Right. Joy should govern us. The joy of God's heart should govern us. Right. Very objective. It's grounded in his word, in the character of his person, long before it's emotive. Very objective, long before it's subjective. 
So let's know the gladness of God's heart and live it. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for your word. And as we go back now in future weeks to study the remainder of these three chapters, help us to begin now to understand what it means to be occupied with the gladness of God's heart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.